0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm, and this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a friend, a very special guest, Sriram Krishnan. Sriram. welcome to the podcast. I should say, welcome back to the podcast. Of course, the other Shuram Krishnan wasn't invited to join us this time, but it's not personal.
1: He will never be invited again. I, you know, you know just like Highlander, there's only one who will survive and it was me.
0: Yes. Uh, okay. So speaking of survive, you are at, you are now surviving on your own. You are at Twitter. You are at Facebook. You are at Snap. You are now unemployed, Shuram. How does it feel?
1: feels weird. I have to admit. Yeah. Uh, I wish I had a very... Uh, Pithy, clean-cut responses. Uh, You know, I left Twitter uh, in December. uh, This is now, I would say, the last week of January or first week of February.
0: You left to be a full-time thought leader, right?
1: I'm just kidding. So I I met someone for coffee recently, and they asked me whether you're a full-time thought leader on Twitter, and I was horrified. Uh, I was like, "This is what I've become? You know, my parents are going to be so ashamed of me. Uh, No, uh, it it feels a bit weird uh, uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, I had, like, a fantastic time at uh, Twitter over the last few years, and I wrapped up my time there at the end of last year. Uh, And now I'm kind of doing a combination of investing, uh, some thought leadering on Twitter— Oh, gosh, that's such a terrible phrase. And just kind of like helping out some companies and working on some side projects. So it feels a little bit weird to not have a very set routine. And I'm kind of figuring out my way into it. But it's been also fun. I have like a one-year-old baby at home. Yeah. Uh, and that's been fun to kind of like, you know, play with her and spend more time with her. And you know, i kind of appreciating that, that a yeah. lot.
0: Totally. Let's talk about those three companies because now you're not a public exec. You could say what you really feel or don't have to worry about. Yes,
1: yeah, Christian reveals all, <laughs> will exa- be the title of this exactly. podcast.
0: Exactly. You don't have to worry about blowback. Let's see. You've you mentioned that Snap is a bizarro FB from DC Comics. Compare sort of FB, Twitter, Snap. How do you make sense of the different companies and, and the cultures? And let's get into it.
1: You know, for, it's interesting because the, all these companies are iconic, amazing companies run by amazing founders. And I think when you're outside silicon valley or outside of our little world you can often think of them as similar you can often classify them as large social media companies but when i was on the inside uh, one of the things i really wanted to do and one of the reasons i picked you know working at snap and working at twitter was i wanted to optimize for learning and i wanted to go learn how to do things differently and what i saw was you can build very similar products but using very different culture, very different organizational mechanisms. So one way to think about it is, here are these three companies which seem similar on the outside, but on the inside are very different. Uh, and I think there are a few patterns which come out of this, uh, and these are some some of my pity learnings. One way to think about it, I think, is each company is a reflection of their founder uh, and or founders where the, the founders really imbue uh, these organizations with so much of what makes them work. For example, I think one of the things I like to talk about is how uh, Facebook and Snap uh, are very different. If you look at uh, say Facebook, I think one of the things Mark has always been really amazing at. Is He is incredibly strategic, incredibly uh, focused on what is the most impactful thing to be done, uh, incredibly focused on measuring the outcomes to make sure the things he's working on have high impact. And I think a lot of Facebook culture uh, is shaped around that. You see this in everything from how they pick what they want to work on how they pick you know what to stop you know what to stop working on and basically you know the core of their organizational culture and you can kind of deep dive into snap on the other hand is very different Mm -hmm. because i think you know evan comes from such a creative background and he has such a great intuitive feel for what makes companies work or what makes products work. And a lot of what makes Snaps work is, hey, let's give people these really creative tools and let's focus on that. And not so, not really obsess over the data, but really obsess over a creative, uh, intuitive leap. For example, like one of the things I like to tell people is if you look at something like Snap Stories and Lenses, there is no framework. There is no metric there is no jobs to be done framework that will lead you to that kind of product innovation. You know, that requires a creative jump for, and intuiting out how, how people are worried to express themselves, uh, intuiting out how people want to capture themselves on camera and bring that to a digital artifact. And I think that's really hard to do from a very metrics-driven culture. So uh, in some ways, I think these companies are in the same business, but internally, they're very different. Twitter is incredibly also very different. If you kind of think of three points of a triangle, they are very different. I think Twitter comes from a place of we are serving the public conversation. We are focused on certain very fundamental first principles, and how do we make sure every single decision we make tracks to those first principles? And these are very public. If you go listen to any one of Jack's multiple podcast interviews, you're going to see him talk about these first principles, and that, that is how they operate on the inside. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of like it do some organizational anthropology. I don't know whether it's the right phrase, but kind of mm-hmm. studies organizations and it's fascinating to see how these are very different on the inside.
0: It's almost, imagine if, uh, you know, Evan had been running Facebook or Mark had been at Snap, running Snap or or Jack had been running one of the other mm-hmm. ones. It's just fascinating to think how how the companies might be different.
1: Uh, yes, and I think some sometimes you do get those counterfactual timelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I would say the uh, if you look at, say, how stories has developed over time, at some point of time, there were probably similarities between how Instagram stories or Snap stories have worked or Facebook stories have worked. But over time, I would say they've kind of diverged and forked off into their own worlds. But yes, I think it's really hard to see. it's it's really hard to imagine these leaders running these other companies because so much of these companies are a personification of what makes them, you know, such amazing founders.
0: So, what do you think people underappreciate or, or get wrong about these companies? From uh, what, what, what do people misunderstand, underestimate, or get wrong about Snap, Facebook, Twitter?
1: Well, the, I think each company is an ocean uh, yeah. which we can uh, dive into. I think maybe to deep dive into one, uh, you know, I think if you think about Twitter. I think one of the things that I really want to admire about Jack yeah. is his f- focus on building things from first principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he he's always insistent that anything that the company does should be deliberate and should ladder up from a very key principle the company operates on. Um, whether it be how, say, you know, product decisions are made; whether it be how organization decisions are made; whether it be how content and policy decisions are made. And I think it's a little hard to maybe see this on the outside because these companies can sometimes seem opaque or you maybe not very paying much attention. But on the inside, I think one of the things Jack brings is certain clarity of thought and focus on first principles. So, and I think one of the challenges is often like seeing these companies from the outside is you don't see the internal debates about, hey, every single decision, how does it map into this quasi-constitutional framework which latter from certain first principles? I think that's really often hard to see from uh, the outside. Uh, I think the second thing from uh, hard to see from the outside is these are really large companies now. It is very easy to say company X or company Y thinks X or Y or Z. But on the inside, these are many people Many organizations with often many conflicting incentives and agendas on the inside. So I think that's often not seen on the outside because you can often portray them as one entity. But on the inside, there are multiple different people who have a diverse range of opinions. Yeah. And
0: without being concrete about it, what is an example, without being too revealing, what's an example of a conflicting agenda that could theoretically happen in in one of these companies that sort of will give the listener a greater appreciation for the challenges of, of getting something done?
1: Well, you know, I think one, one interesting discussion, and this has happened like a little bit back in time. I don't think it's super controversial is, uh, I like to think about when Facebook first launched autoplay video. So, you know, for a lot of you, a lot of your listeners might be much younger, uh, than we are, but way back in the day, you know, when you actually had to open up uh, a video on your mobile phone or app, there was usually this big play button. You'd click on it and then it would play. And circa, I would say, 2013, 2012, uh, Facebook wanted to go up. There were certain teams at Facebook who were experimenting with making those videos auto-playable, which yeah. is when you scroll through in feed, these videos would start playing automatically. Now, on the inside, uh, and I'm picking this because it seems like a small product decision, yeah. but at the time, it was very controversial. Number one, hey, do people have the bandwidth? To make this work you know are we going to eat through people's bandwidth are we going to just buffer and not be able to deliver good experience that was number one um number two was a question of hey is this just going to dominate people's experience like you scroll and all of a sudden you see this crazy moving pictures you know is this a thing that people really want and there's kind of this long you know list of questions another question was if we do something like this you know is it going to take away something core to how facebook is operating the likes comments shares and there were many schools of thought on this. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think in, in the end, you know, I think it was Mark's thesis that, look, over time, bandwidth is going to get better. We want to give people better tools to express themselves. Yeah. So we're going to roll this out. We're going to roll this out as a constrained test. But we want to roll this out and we'll see what happens. Okay. So and I'm massively oversimplifying what was a long multi-month Maybe even more than that discussion among many different uh, organizations, many different teams inside Facebook. But that's a kind of a small example on the outside where you seem like something which seems just like, hey, Facebook just decided to do X. On the inside was a very complex decision. The other, maybe the more recent relevant example I like to think about is Twitter moving to 280 characters. Yeah. So uh, I love this because uh, this, I can take no credit for it. All the work was done before I joined the company. But when Jack was trying to get me to join Twitter, we had dinner and he's like, hey, I want to show you something. And he pulls out his phone and he says, look, we are thinking of moving Twitter to 280 characters, which made me go like, whoa, this was huge. Because Twitter was known for 140. There were so many things about 140 characters. And this seems so fundamental. And he asked me, like, what do you think? And uh, I remember at the time telling him, look, I don't care what the data says. You can always roll it back. But it's symbolic and important that Twitter is making changes, like these core big changes. Now, on the inside, as you can imagine, there are many schools of thought about, hey, what happens? You know, are we going to lose some core essence that makes Twitter magical? I mean, Twitter is all about being brief, but are we going to lose something magical? There is no easy way to test this. You can't actually A-B test giving a few people 280 characters and then give everyone, give everyone a 740. That doesn't work because the way the networks are set up. Um, now there's a lot of good data. To back up why this is a good idea, people, uh, Twitter had studied how people in Japan were using Twitter and Japanese language, and it could be butchering this has almost twice the information density of English, and you could see how people express more. And that is kind of a proof point, but you never really knew until you launched it. And honestly, it requires some level of guts and fortitude to go say we're gonna go for it. Now on the outside, I'm sure this, you know, like a lot of these nations, there was this big protest, there were all these opinions about, hey, this is going to shake up the magic of Twitter, but now history tells us that a, not only really like, you know, it was, you know, you didn't kind of remove the magic, it actually opened up a lot more people and a lot of different kinds of conversations. There was actually a blog post Twitter published about maybe six to eight months ago uh, about like how, you know, 280 characters have been really good for the company. So that's an example of on the outside, you don't see the internal debates of yeah. these decisions, but on the inside, you know, it's chaos, often chaotic.
0: Yeah. A couple more questions on each company, then we'll move to other topics. On Facebook, people often bring up sort of the Cambridge Analytica, sort of the fake news stuff, filter bubbles. How, how much of those concerns are totally over, overstated versus what are the real concerns Facebook has brought up? You know, another way of asking is, do you think they've made a crucial mistake in the last few years? Or, 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 or put another way, if you were Zuck for, for a few years, what, what would you do differently? What, what, what would you, um, yeah, What would you change?
1: That's a hard question for many reasons. I think one of them is I was at Facebook, you know, the time when some of these systems were built. Uh, so maybe I'm embarrassed and too close to the question. I think there are a few things going on. First is I think we now know that, you know, back in 2016, um, you know, Facebook didn't really realize the extent of the threat of misinformation, the threat of what was happening with the Russians, um, and, you know, they just didn't realize, like, the, the extent of that. Now, there are many conflicting thoughts on, you know, should Facebook have been on, you know, should have understood it themselves? Should the U.S. government have, you know, engaged with them and warned them about, say, the IRA or the GRU going after them? There are many schools on thought of that. But the one I think is, like, everyone on Facebook acknowledged that, hey, you know, back in 2016, we didn't actually, you know, ex- realize the total extent of this. And to, I think to a large extent, from what I read on the outside, and listening to folks like... Say Alex Tamoz, you're seeing they were actually really caught up in 2020 and like putting these defenses in place to stop really bad actors from going after them. So I think that's one. I think the second is which I think like even Mark talks about is Facebook now has a different stance on privacy than what they had say 2012, 2013.
0: That was a sort of a st- strategic decision.
1: I- I- I'm not sure it is a strategic strategic is one word i think 2012 2013 was a different time so if you remember if you go back then one of the things that facebook was often criticized for was being a walled garden yeah. you know there was this big push that hey you know if you're an app developer facebook has this walled garden where you can't really reach in and build apps and one of the reasons that facebook platform was built was to give people this ability hey you know if you want to build uh an app which is millions of hundreds of millions of people and you want to build an app to social instead of building your own graph, you know, yeah. build it on top of Facebook. And and I think now either you know, so one I think is to realize the context in which with some of these experiences and apps were built. Because back then it was fantastic. It opened up so many great experiences. I remember opening up Spotify and being able to see what my friends were playing. Um, that was a kind of a great experience, right? Or being able to log into apps without having to remember new username and password. So I'm actually a big fan of what Facebook pla- platform built. And again, I'm too closest because I was, you know, I worked there during the time. Uh, but I think now in retrospect, I think Facebook's now realized that, hey, maybe people didn't totally understand how their data was being used. And, you know, and it, which, Maybe clear in retrospect, but at the time, it was a different era, different place. But I think across all of this, I think for me, the most interesting question is one of human agency. So I think there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is that, hey, you know, um, I would say essentially human beings can't be trusted with what they consume on social media at scale. That there needs to be some filter, some kind of editorial control, which uh, tries to figure out what is right, what is wrong, and acts as a little bit of a gatekeeper. I think that's one school of thought. I think the other school of thought is that we trust people to have agency over their information diet. And we're gonna give them a lot of context. We're gonna tell them, uh, hey, these are what say fact checkers say, this is what say, you know, uh reputable or news organizations say. But at the end of the day, we if you want to spend all day reading about John Wick like I do, uh, great, that's awesome, right? Uh you know, I'm really excited for the next John Wick movie, uh, which opens the same day as the Matrix uh, next cool. Matrix movie, by the way. So I think these are two schools of thought and I think in some ways it's kind of like a broader social question than a Facebook question yeah. which is you know we never had time in society where people could basically pick their information sources at scale and I don't think it's a Facebook question I think it's much a broader one for like all of us to ponder on
0: yeah that's really interesting do you think there uh, the Oculus thing makes sense or, or their broader idea of we need to own a platform
1: so I have a plug here so one of the things I do on my site uh, thank you uh, thanks the good segue you're such a great host I uh, uh, One of the things I do on my site is I collect a bunch of memos, uh, or at least public memos. And one of the uh, public memos I have is from Mark Zuck talking about uh, Facebook's case for buying Unity, which never happened. But, you know, it's kind of an interesting artifact of a certain point in time. I think it makes sense for a few reasons. Uh, You know, one is, in a broader sense... Mark's bet, I believe, is in the long term, VR and AR are going to be a thing. You know, maybe we don't know exactly what the timeline is. Maybe we don't know what the killer app is. But over time, it is going to be a thing. And if you're in the business of connecting people like Facebook is, it makes sense to have a call option when those experiences get built. I think that's one. Um, I think the second, from a more strategic perspective, is if you look at Facebook as a company, they've always had to rely on other tech companies to deliver their experiences to you. Like, let's say you open up Facebook right now. If you do it on your phone, you're doing it with a device made by Apple or a device which is heavily influenced by Google. If you do it on your desktop, you're doing it through a browser, you know, run probably by Google or Microsoft or someone else. So, Facebook's always had a middleman where that middleman kind of, you know, it, it influences or shapes their access to you and i think it's in any company's best interest to have direct access to their consumers and yeah. go bare metal so you can see why it makes strategic sense for them to say hey if this vr thing becomes a big deal over a long period of time you know we should probably have like direct access over this so this is kind of my read of the situation from the outside of why it makes super sense for them
0: yeah their their attempt to create a phone a long time ago uh didn't didn't work uh, should they have tried to buy nest or I don't, i'm just looking at other Potential platforms that they should either could have either bought or potential built.
1: One of my pet theories is, uh, and I don't think it's ever been talked about before, or even inside of Facebook. So I think the one question Facebook really missed out on is building a browser. Mm. Uh, so if you think about it, right now you know Chrome seems like such a given. You know it dominates the market, and of course there's a mini resurgence with Edge and Brave and uh, Firefox, but Chrome is still dominant. But if you go back, say, 2007, 2008, it was Microsoft Internet Explorer, which was the dominant player by far. And if you remember the Chrome launch with the comic book, it was this new entry uh, on the market. And I think back then, Google's strategic thinking was not to win the market as much as to make sure there's not one dominant player. Because Google had a similar problem to what Facebook has now, which is Microsoft was brokering their access to their customers. So they didn't want to have one party have all the strategic power on them. So it was their interest to almost push for that that layer to be a commodity, which I think they really effectively did. And in fact, they built such a great experience that they won the market. But if you go back in time, you ask yourself, why should a search engine company own a web browser? That seems like kind of like a bizarre... Question. And you can say, well, if they could own a brand browser, it might as well make sense that a social media company can own a brand browser. In fact, it might even make more sense because you can tie you into a social layer. There are a lot of things that you do with people which are inherently social in a web browser, much more than, say, with search. So I think Facebook, you know, um, and I have no idea what Mark's thinking on this, but my theory is like one strategic uh, sort of trick that they missed circa 2009, 2010 was either buying or building a, a browser on their own.
0: Wow. Does Libra make sense? Would you have prioritized it in the way that they have?
1: Well, I think one of the things I really admire about Facebook, and I think about this when I talk to founders or when I think about uh, starting a company, is they're so mission driven. Which, by the way, actually, it's a good answer for one of the questions you asked a bit earlier on, which is like, what do people on the outside misunderstand? Yeah. Is that these companies are very mission driven companies. Yeah. They are often not motivated by, say, profit, not that. You know, making money isn't important to, you know, buy the data centers and, you know, hire people, but they're often primarily motivated by mission, right or wrong. Yep. And I think if you look at it through that lens, it makes a lot of sense that, hey, you know, we are in the business of connecting people uh, and building these communities and, banking and, you know, working with money is something which is really hard. Uh, It's very hard in large parts of the world. There's a lot of friction. And it makes a lot of sense that that is something you do in the place where you connect with your friends. So through that lens, it makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, the challenge has been, you know, how do you do that in a time when trust in Facebook, you know, has come, come through its challenges with Cambridge Analytica and everything else. I think so timing of that maybe, you know, might make it harder for them. But from a mission perspective, I think it makes perfect sense.
0: Yeah. L- let's talk about Snap. Uh, did in- did uh, Instagram stories uh, and v- Facebook basically sort of mimicking Snap's features uh, mean that Snap's growth potential is, is limited? Do they have to move into other services for, for their demographic, i.e., Insurance or something, you know, just the full stack, you know, uh, services for their demographic. Do they have to hope that they get the next generation as well? Uh, what's your take on Snap, and what would you be doing if if you were Ev?
1: Well, I, I don't know what I'd be doing if I were Evan, but I think I think he's doing a really good job. I actually think Snap and Instagram are really different, and the idea that Snap stories and Instagram stories are similar is it's true at some level, obviously. But if you look at it more much deeper, if you look at how people use Snap. I think a lot of what powers Snap usage is people just chatting all the time and you know messaging each other in such a fluid, a vibrant way. Um, that's one. Um, and second is Snap is so much more intimate. It is yeah. about you know forming the small you know groups of friends that you hang out with. You hang out in the class. You're a bit bored. You're kind of like snapping them all the time. You're sending hundreds of Snap back and forth. Now I think that as a use case or a job to be done is very different from say the instant. Instagram story job to be done. So the first one I would say is, I think the the Venn diagram between these two companies and who they're going after definitely has some overlap, but they're actually essentially serving, I think, very different use cases. Um, and my evidence point for that is if you look at, say, Snap's earnings over the last couple of years, um, and listen to Evan's comments or, you know, the Snap leadership comments, they talked about, for example, that how their redesign after a couple of years ago, you know, um, slowed their growth. And then after that, you know, as they've kind of made their Android app better and, you know, fixed international or. International, they you know their growth is back up again. So, which kind of tells you that Snap is on a journey, yeah. which is on its own path apart from Instagram. So, I actually think you know those two companies are actually serving very different needs. And even now, you know, when I talk to uh, kids in high school or talk to founders who are much much younger than me, which is often annoying. Uh, uh, <laughs> when did we get so old, Eric? Uh, 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 and um, is, you see that you know um, there is a space for both of these products on people's
0: use. No, totally. Let's talk about Twitter. Uh, so Twitter is confusing to most people. Uh, twi- no. <laughs> uh, some people just say just
1: open it up and type whatever comes in yes. your <laughs> mind. Exactly. That's
0: it. Well, that's what I do. Um, Please do. Yes. Some people- As
1: a stockholder, I highly endorse that. Yes.
0: As some people say that Twitter moments is the most important newspaper in the world and that it guides what, what journalists do. Uh, some people say Twitter is an absolute dumpster fire and it's what got our president elected and they, they, they blame it for that. W- what are the challenges at Twitter? W- what's going on at Twitter? W- what has to happen at Twitter?
1: I love Twitter as a product, as a company. Uh, um, you know, one of the reasons I went to work there was after you know, after I was done on Snap. I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to get back into an operating role again. Yeah. You know, I was starting dabbling in investing, which and I'm doing more of now. And I wasn't really sure. And one of the things which drew drew me to Twitter was apart from well, I use it a lot personally, yeah. which is probably annoyingly evident to some of your listeners, is that it felt it had a really important purpose in the world. So Twitter's purpose is to serve the public conversation. Uh, You hear Jack talk about this all the time. And I think at the time, you know, given, say, the elections or how Twitter was such a key part of culture, when I was talking to Jack, I felt like, hey, this is a place where I could have an impact and this is a place uh, which is actually having impact on the world at scale in serving the public conversation so and i think that is was true when i decided to join i think that is true till now which i think twitter is the heart of what makes a public conversation so i think that's one um i think you know, and in in some ways, I think they are even more relevant now in these sort of charged times that we live in yeah. than before. Because over time, you see the need to have these public conversations in these public spaces, uh, uh, and I think Twitter is even more relevant now than it used to be. Uh, now I think the questions for Twitter are honestly, you know, and this is something you hear them talk about all the time: is when you have this, you're basically having all of the world speaking together how do you shape healthy incentives you know i think all of us have experiences when you have these amazing magical moments on twitter like for example my favorite moment 2016 nba finals lebron comes back to win 4-3. let's never forget that you know i just want to I, I want to mention on every podcast I'm on. I just want to, you know, mention that on every podcast. And so, you know, I, if you remember that moment, that moment was magical on Twitter. Uh, it exploded. Uh, maybe not magical if you're a Golden State Warriors <laughs> fan, uh, which is why I also want to remind <laughs> you folks on this podcast. But you know, and you know, there were memes, there were gifts, there was. It, it felt magical, and that's kind of a pop fun, pop culture moment. But I think we all experienced those moments which feel magical. Yeah. You know, on the other hand, I think we all experienced moments when you say something, and all of a sudden, somebody you don't know is yelling at you, yeah. and you know, in your are like well why is this happening and i think you know and i think twitter's path you know for the last few years has been how do we shape these incentives on the platform to be healthy and to have a healthier conversation and this is hard because you're doing it at such scale you're doing it across such different uh, kinds of you know communities and conversations and it's a really really hard problem so for example one of the you know, their recent product launches uh, which again I had no part to play with um, but I'm a huge fan of is now you can hide replies yeah. to uh, your tweets where this kind of a, going back to the example of hey why is someone yelling at me well now if you're if you find be like hey i'm saying this and i don't want this person uh to take over the space or be toxic or unhealthy you can hide these replies now twitter is going to say look this person hired in these replies if you still want to you can still go read them so that's kind of an interesting question But twitter is like trying to balance healthy conversations but also trying to make sure that it it takes into account like all the different kinds of people that are involved so i think uh, uh i think twitter's Big challenge slash opportunity is going to be how do we make this conversation healthier, but I'm a huge fan, you know, you're going to be see me, you're going to see me talking about LeBron every single day.
0: So if you can wave a wand, uh, and change any lever or any feature, uh, or add or edit or take away at at Twitter, uh, to help improve this goal that they also share, what might that look like?
1: So, uh, okay, here's a story which I haven't told anybody before. Uh, so when Jack was talking to me about joining the company, uh, he asked me actually something similar, yeah. which was what would you do if you had a magic wand? And one of the analogies I use, and I don't think this is about Twitter. I think this is true for any, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners are you know, working in social platforms or things which have social uh, mechanics, where I think a lot of these social platforms are analogous to, let's call them restaurants. Yeah. So let's say you are going to, what's a, What's a very fancy restaurant you like, Eric? Give what, us a sneak peek at your life. You know,
0: I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty low keys, him. uh
1: That's not true. talks <laughs> right now with a martini in his hand.
0: We're, let's say Fleming, Palo Alto. That uh, just came to mind.
1: Uh, well, let, okay, let's say it's fancy, uh, you know, or let's say a French Laundry, right? Okay, let's do it. Really fancy. Uh, um, you'd probably wear, say, a suit there. You'd yep. probably be really dressed up, um, and you're probably not going to get up and say dance on the table. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, I've never seen that done. I'm assuming it's not a thing. On the other hand, if you are at, say, a sports bar and yeah. let's say you were at Super Bowl, you know, and let's say a Super Bowl viewing party yesterday, it's probably okay to go yell and shout and be a little raquous. Yeah. Uh, same with code. You, know, you can go to, uh, say, a Hawaiian beach shack and you, you're going to show up in like flip-flops and shorts and it's going to be okay. So I think every uh, restaurant has a decorum or a code of conduct or, uh, or a certain aesthetic. And I think that, you know, uh, for any successful community you need to have something similar what are the rules of engagement what is the code of conduct uh, and you can the community can pick you know the community can say hey look we encourage uh vigorous disagreement or the community can pick hey you know we encourage things which are only positive and supportive but whatever it is i think the community has to go pick one and one of my you know magic wand waving things for twitter was how do we get people on twitter to express more gratitude to express more uh, about what makes them happy or what makes them laugh one of my pet theories is the a lot of things on Twitter are conflict many emotions. Like if you hit a, like a like button, the like button on Twitter could conflate, hey, I like this, love this, uh, show me more of this, which is often why I like something because, you know, I'm like, hey, show me more from this author, show me more of this content. It can mean I endorse this. Uh, it used to mean, hey, i save this for later. Um, um, and even for it inspires a positive emotion, it could mean it made me laugh, It you know, I, I learned something from this. There are so many different things could happen. And I think it there's some value in trying to break those apart. So, for example, you know, and I'm just like making something up here. Imagine a social platform where you had, hey, I'm thankful for this or, hey, I learned something from this button. No, of course, the number of tweets or the number of Instagram posts or the number of TikTok videos where users could be minimal. But I think you could then split out some of these incentives and figure out, okay, what are kinds of communities which are, have gratitude as a core part? What are kinds of communities which have humor as a core part? And then you can do really interesting things there. So I think one of my, you know, magic wand things is, uh, how do I get people on Twitter to split out the kind of emotions they want to express.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. There there are two presidential uh, candidates that I think are are uniquely enabled by Twitter or sort of the ethos that that Twitter represents or or the internet more broadly. One is obviously Donald Trump in terms of being, you know, uh, I'll insert my editorial here, very divisive and that being very good for engagement on Twitter. But the the next is um, more of a fringe candidate, Andrew Yang, uh, which I think he's doing more so on the meme side, just being immensely funny, being very personal. There's something about uh, the meme and laughing, um, and sort of you know amusing ourselves to death is a book I, I, that uh, Keter Boy mentioned that sort of predicted this a couple of years ago that makes certain people more more tolerable. Like uh, there was this. Do you know Darko Milicic? Uh, no. He was the second pick in the NBA draft in like 2005. He was a total bust. He, he never went anywhere. Same draft as LeBron and Carmelo Anthony. But some people say if he was around today, he would have been this sort of legendary meme character. But there was something about 2005 that just didn't appreciate meme culture. Or they didn't have the tools to spread meme culture. Joel Embiid, same... for
1: example. Fantastic yeah, meme, um, exactly. Meme
0: person. Yeah. Do you uh, – let's take Andrea. Like, do you take that h- – how do you think about the way – you know, the medium shapes the conversation, um, in terms of, uh, memes, but also just things that are meant to be funny or laughed at or how do you think about that? Like, is there Andrew Yang without Twitter or?
1: Well, I think. You know, uh, I'm a big fan of, have you read uh, Martin Gurry's uh, yes. uh, Revolt of the Public? Yep. Uh, I'm a big fan of that book. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Martin Gurry is, is actually a retired CIA analyst uh, who had a fantastic blog, who has a fantastic blog. And he wrote a book back in, I think, 2014 or 2013 called The Revolt of the Public, yes. uh, which basically has at its core thesis, and I might butcher this, you should hold me honest to it, is, hey, you know, uh, the public, you know... Uh, it, is going through this very secular change where in the past, your access to information to the ruling class, be it politicians, be it folks in the media, were brokered through certain few institutions. But over time, thanks to the rise of the internet, you had direct one, your direct access to politicians, media figures, celebrities. So one, there was no middleman. Second, you know, you were kind of forming these communities on your own and forming these social movements on their own without being brokered by the central gatekeepers. And this book was written in 2014, but in some ways it kind of predicts the rise of Trump. Uh, it predicts the rise of, I would say, you know, like uh, like a lot of folks in like international elections, which I think, you know, uh, have been predicted by that. And uh, it's a fantastic book. And it really helped me, helped give me a framework to think about how uh, a lot of these politicians have been able to use twitter so in some way, I think if you look at uh, someone like an Andrew Yang, he's very, and I think there are many others of this nature, I would say if you look at the last couple of years, folks on either side, I think AOC, for example, has been uh, you know, phenomenal as using Twitter to get our message yeah. out. Uh, you know, Andrew Yang is definitely an example. There are lots of folks actually international also who are like really good examples. And I think in each of the cases, I think what Andrew is able to do is he's basically in some ways a one-man media organization. So instead of having to rely on just, say, the debates, or just say uh, uh, winning endorsements from newspapers he's able to get his message directly to the public so for example one of the things which I believe really helped his campaign was him going on podcasts he did this podcast tour uh, many different podcasts including Joe Rogan and others now this is an entire media ecosystem you know whether you agree with these podcasts you know hosts or not which never really existed but you know Yang is able to take this message directly to the public so I think that's one the second I think one thing I think he's gotten a lot better on Twitter, and this is just for me, you know, observing this, is trying to figure out what works. So, for example, what, something to which makes Twitter work is being creative, being in the moment uh, you know, sort of short and pithy, but really creative. And I think What he's been able to do is really iterate on his messaging, because if you go back in time and say, look at his messaging from a year and a half ago, uh, you know, he's still talking about UBI and, you know, uh, um, and still really same issues, but it was much more traditional. But now, you know, you see, uh, uh, him. Trying to play basketball, uh, uh, you know, uh, showing off his jumper, you know, uh, you, know it, it show, you know, with the right hashtag. So I think he's kind of also iterated very quickly on what messages work for social media. So I, you know, when I talk to I'm not politicians, but you know, often people ask me how do I make Twitter or social media work for me? And my key lesson to them is always, look, you never know what is going to work unless you iterate very quickly and learn. And so you have to be willing to set your ego aside, set aside what you think of as well-known best practices and just go out and iterate. And iterate on what the message is, iterate on what you're using as a distribution mechanism and always learn. And I think Yang has been doing that really well. So for example, one person who's not a politician from close to our world, who I think has been doing this really well recently is Naval. No, yeah, um, and so Naval, if you go back, say 10, eight nine years ago, had a very well read blog. He was already well known on the Silicon Valley tech scene for you know I, I don't think he started Angelist then, but he had this blog I think it was called Startup Boy uh, on WordPress. Angel uh, Hacks. Uh, Angel Hacks, yes, uh, and uh, you know he was very well known. But I think over time, you know, of course, you know, he obviously built something incredible with AngelList, but I think over time he kind of understood what made Twitter work, yeah. uh, in these kind of very short fortune cookie-esque, uh, um, you know, tweets, you know, the most famous one was how to get wealthy, yeah. um, and one thing I like about Naval is he's always testing. So yeah. if you look at his content now, uh, you see him do these mini podcasts, right? And everyone's yeah. doing podcasts, but if you look at Naval's podcast, he's kind of understood the format where he takes out these little segments and then he overlays them with uh, text. So let's say you're opening up Twitter, you know, uh, and let's say you're even listening to Eric Tornberg because obviously you should listen to Eric Tornberg immediately. You should stop what you're doing and listening to it, but you probably have to pop in your earbuds or find a quiet moment and you know listen to some audio but now all you don't have to because what he does is you, you have the text overlaid as a snippet so you can just consume it right then and there or you can save for later so i think he's the master or he's one of the best i've seen recently at trying to optimize distribution mechanisms yeah. and i think that's a lesson for pretty much anyone and i'm sure a lot of your listeners are trying to figure out how to build distribution it's like always iterate always try and learn from with what the medium is giving you
0: yeah no i love that uh, another example, of course, is Mark Andreessen's invention of the tweet storm.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I don't remember, I think it was, I, I believe it started on like January 1st of one year, and it was not a feature which was built into Twitter. He just, kind of invented it and it solved so many problems for Twitter in some ways because because you had tweet strums, you never really needed Twitter to build say long form writing yeah. you know because you just do it with a tweet strum and tweet are more natural to the platform in so many ways I, I, I'm always a fan of trying to understand these new distribution mechanism hacks uh, or what really makes new channels work uh, for example like one of the things I've been doing uh, uh, recently is I have this newsletter uh, which I've been writing and what I found really effective is writing a tweet storm of just something, and then like linking to my newsletter at the end of it. And for some reason, uh, when people find a tweet helpful, it goes really viral, and I wind up getting like a lot of new people showing up on my newsletter, which I generally don't find do. So yeah, I'm a big fan of just studying this. Totally. The
0: uh, what's happening with blue sky or, or Twitter's sort of decentralized, decentralized social media uh, visions? How, how do you view that? Uh, and then maybe. There's no podcast without bringing in Balaji. Um, Balaji, how, how do you think his decentralized social media views overlap or differ from from yours?
1: Well, uh, you know, Balaji is probably the uh, if you can imagine an axis of you know you know how decentralized people think the world is going to be. Balaji at the furthest end of the axis. In fact, he's probably running ahead of the axis, <laughs> and the axis trying to like you know sprint and keep up with him. My take on Blue Sky is. going back to something we spoke about earlier jack is really really good at focusing on first principles and i think one of the things he believes is a everything on the internet lasts forever and b uh the the real innovation or the real opportunity often lies in building incredible relevance and recommendation algorithms and if you listen to him talk on say rogan or the places you often hear him talk about this and if you look at it blue sky through that lens it makes a lot of sense for example instead of you know twitter or say facebook or tiktok or instagram being a stack a stack which gives you hosting of content i mean right now if you post a tweet you know twitter gives you hosting if you post a tiktok video are you on tiktok eric i'm not yet you might you might kill it like eric on tiktok could be a real thing you know, uh, you know i'm gonna pre-announce that eric's gonna show up on tiktok <laughs> i'm
0: gonna ask you for a strategy session i don't know what i would do on tiktok
1: Ah. Uh, well, you know, I, I think you'll be national. Okay. Uh, so yeah, stay tuned for that, folks. Um, no, but I think in each one of these platforms, they give you hosting. Um, they give you a certain moderation policy of what is allowed, what isn't allowed. They give you a certain verification policy, who gets the blue check mark and who doesn't. Uh, they give you a certain, um, AI relevance and recommendation algorithms, which often keep changing, but they're very different. And it's kind of a stack, which, uh, which is, like, one size meets all in some ways. And the analogy I often use is think of Gmail. Um, if you think of Gmail, Gmail is built on top of SMTP, IMAP, uh, you know, POP3, all the email protocols that we know. But if you look at the Gmail experience, when you open it up into your browser or your phone, it collapses so many things. You know, one, it layers on top of these protocols. Two, it gives you recommendation algorithms because it sorts spam and not spam. It sorts out things into like what is social, what is a you know a, a mailing newsletter offer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it collapses a lot of things into one great experience. Um, but if you wanted to, you could experience Gmail without any of that. You can always connect Mail.app or Thunderbird or Outlook and just get regular email directly. And when you look at social networks today, I think of them as Gmail, but without having SMTP, without having POP, without having those core protocols open. And this is why I think Blue Sky is really interesting. So what Blue Sky lets people do, and look, this is super early. Like, all we have right now is, Chris just announced they're going to try and find somebody to work on this. So who knows? Like, you know, we're talking like many years out. But I think what's really interesting is opening up innovation for people to say, hey, if you don't like how Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or any platform is building their own recommendation algorithms, come build your own. And there's going to be a marketplace of some sort or, you know, uh, you know, where you can go compete on who has the best, say, recommendation algorithm. Or, for example, another common question which comes up is verification. Like, you know, if you don't, say, approve of how any one of these companies is verifying people, go plug in your own algorithm. Uh, you know, like maybe Eric... Verifies people, you know, uh, and you all ping Eric to get verified on this new platform. So I think that's really interesting to see how you can split these out. And these are the examples that we know of. I think one of the things we have learned over time is when you build a platform, you open up ideas and, you know, uh, applications which you haven't thought of. And so it, you could get like a maybe a crazy new set of applications which we just haven't thought of before. So I think the whole thing is really, really uh, interesting for all these things.
0: And to be clear, if you want to get verified, do ask for him. Um, he'll, uh, he'll help you out.
1: Um, it's
0: <laughs> uh, last question on twitter uh could twitter have been i've already planned my uh tiktok tweet by the way <laughs> after this podcast could twitter have been a hundred billion dollar company uh what's the, what's the best business case for how it becomes significantly bigger than than it is today because uh, there was a time where people were saying what happens to twitter does does, does it become a public utility do people have to buy it does it become private again
1: let me try to answer this, in this way i still firmly believe that of all the companies twitter is the best position to capture the public conversation with the product they have with the people they have uh, uh it, it, with the community that it has it's the best poise to capture the public conversation. but how do
0: you capture the value from that?
1: Well, I think it starts first with actually capturing the conversation itself and making it healthy. And I think the, I think one of the things we learn is once you do that, you can figure out how to get the value out of it much later. And of course, Twitter has done a fantastic job over the last few years. You know, they have a great team building ads, uh, 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 and really figuring out how to get brands to be more active on Twitter, which I think is fantastic. But I think it really starts with shaping the public conversation yeah. you know which is what they really focused on
0: do you think tiktok is a long standing social media juggernaut or do you think that one of these other platforms copies their features and how, how do you think about the future of tiktok
1: it's hard to say first because I am not natively on it, and I'm always a little skeptical of over intellectualizing these platforms. Yeah. I think all of these platforms capture a certain zeitgeist in a moment in time, a certain set of people, you know, who don't want to be on the same platform as their parents or you know people older than them, who sadly you now I think Eric, we are not the people yes. older than him. Uh, and so it's kind of capture something in a moment in time. I, I think the question for TikTok would be you have captured a certain aesthetic or a certain form of self-expression. Um, and, you know, one. Second, you have captured a certain graph, which is one-to-many, essentially. Yeah. Now, if I were them, and I have no idea how to think about this, is how do you then expand out of that? How do you expand out of that one single form of expression to other forms of expression? How do you expand from that one one-to-many graph to maybe one-to-a-few, one-to-one so you look at something like instagram right if you think of instagram story when they started it was just you know the photographic community in san francisco uh posting these really gorgeous photos right and over time you know the kind of photos really grew uh then you had messaging so it enabled one-to-one small group conversations then you had different forms of expression start off with stories so you kind of seen how if you can imagine say Uh, you know, a table of, you know, how people, you know, how many people do you want to communicate? And then the kind of self expression or the kind of format you want to use. You can see how Instagram has kind of captured these adjacent spaces over time. And I think that would be the question for TikTok because I do think there is a shelf life. If you only stay with one form of expression and one form of graph over time, because after some period of time, these folks are going to grow older or the the folks coming in are going to find it harder and harder to compete with the folks who are already at the top of tiktok so that's one question if i were them i try and build adjacent spaces the second is i have this framework of thinking about it which uh you know which i think i give a lot of credit to eugene way for uh which is to think of a lot of these social platforms in terms of social currency so one way to think about say any one of these social platforms is uh you have currency you have followers you have reach you know you have a lot of people viewing your tweets your videos whatever they may be you could easily have built inequality to use this you know, analogy on your platform. And so let's say somebody shows up, you know, a new teenager shows up uh, four years from now on TikTok. Can he or she climb to the top of TikTok very quickly by being creative? Or are they going to look at TikTok and say, look, I can't play this game. The folks who are wealthy here are going to be wealthy forever. They're going to have tens, hundreds of millions of followers. I'm just going to go find a different game. So I and I think one of the things which makes social networks alive over a period of time or keeps them alive is finding ways to handle the social currency. Or when new people come in, how do they have a path to building some new social currency? So I think that's one interesting framework to look at, like, any platform.
0: Yeah. You had this uh, tweet that went viral recently. And you've had a lot of tweets that go viral recently.
1: You know, for mostly that.
0: due to your full time focus. Uh, just kidding. The uh, but your your Netflix tweet uh, about um, you know product management interview question. So sort of, should it be editorial or algorithmic? What are the trade offs? Um, I want you to get into in, into how you think about how you'd answer that question. Um, and maybe before that, you can give a brief uh, another thing you've had is around how social media is like fiscal policy. So maybe you can explain that. And maybe let's get into. It.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, well, thanks for that. Uh, 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 so on social media, fiscal policy, I think kind of. like pretty- carries on from what I was just talking about, which is one of my pet pithy phrases, which often sounds good in dinner parties, is to think of like running a social media company as you're setting fiscal policy for a medium-sized country. And in a lot of ways, you have these large levers you can pull, which have... Large downstream effects, but you can't often really predict the downstream effects or measure them really cleanly. So, for example, you know, one way to think about a uh, social platform is you have people who are going to get reach, you know, and how do you make sure that when new people show up on the platform, they have a path to getting reach too, you know, or are they going to come over and they look like, hey, look, there's no path for me to get like, if you're on Instagram today, can do you have do you have any shot of getting as big as a rock? Do you have any shot, you know, if you're on, uh, you know, TikTok, do you have any shot? of getting as big as the kids in hype house. Now I don't know, you know, but I think it's really key for the vibrancy of these platforms to give people such a path. So a little bit like it's like it's like handling fiscal policy. Like how do you put taxes on the rock? Maybe Instagram says, hey, look, you know, if you are new to the platform, you know, we are going to give you in our feed algorithm going to give you a little bit of a bump just to make sure that you have a path to reaching the rock, right? Uh, and maybe the rock is forced to be more creative and you know post more just so that he just doesn't coast on his you know zillion odd followers. So you know, these are obviously very naive, pithy ideas. But I think there's some truth there about how do you manage reach and attention, which is really the core currency you have, and make sure that new members in the community, old members in the community, all, you know, have their incentives aligned. So I think that's a really interesting problem. And, you know, in my post, I talk about how we can then explore other parts of social media in terms of fiscal policy. For example, wealth inequality, uh, we spoke about. I think taxation is thinking about like, hey, if you already have, let's say, you're The Rock, maybe you should, are you going to work harder to reach your audience as opposed to somebody new who Instagram doesn't have access to and they want to make them happy. So I think it's an interesting model. Now, like all models, they are imperfect. So please don't tweet at me saying it's not fiscal policy because it's not money. It is not money. But I think it gives you an interesting tool or lens to think about it.
0: Let's go into the, the Netflix example. So uh, how should people think about the trade-offs between uh, editorial and algorithmic?
1: Yeah, so 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 the question which you're referring to is, it's my second favorite Interview question of all time. I'm always very hesitant to review my interview questions because when you review interview questions, you know, it's harder. People can game you in interviews. Yeah. So I'm never going to talk about what my first, oh, okay. my most fear. I'll tell you after we finish. Okay. I got it. You know, but my second favorite interview question, of, PM interview question of all time was uh, Imagine you're the PM of Netflix. And by the way, it doesn't have to be Netflix. I just picked Netflix because the company that a lot of people use and are familiar with. If somebody said they didn't know Netflix, I would say, Okay, tell me about Airbnb. And I, the goal is not a quism on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, uh, and I would say, you, know, you are the product manager in charge of the Netflix home screen. And you have a lot of options for what content you can show. You can show, uh, you can have a big, a bunch of editorial choices. And you can show how, uh, say, when say Netflix pays a lot of money and gets the Irishman. Uh, it, you can just make sure everyone in America just sees the Irishman on top of the screen. Or you could go completely algorithmic. And you could say, we want to let the algorithm decide... For example, what is the content that people are spending the most time on? And we're going to show you that. These are, by the way, extremely naive, pithy uh, versions of what these decisions could be. And anyway, I asked them, if you're a PM, how would you think about it? And the reason why I love this question is it's because it's what I call an iceberg question. Because it seems simple at the top. It seems like a UI question about, hey, are you going to pick algorithms or editorial? But what it really is, it's a question of values, of how do you balance you know, what the what the customer wants, how do you balance what the company wants, how do you balance what your partners want, you know, um, and what your algorithms want. And you, and first off, do you even know that there are all these different stakeholders in the ecosystem? Do you know, for example, that, you know, there is Ted Thorntons is running a huge team which is out there going buying all this content or there's a bunch of, maybe, you know, Martin Scorsese has it in his contract that, you know, he should be highlighted, you know, when I uh, just went goes on. I don't know. But first, the question is, do you even know and can you map out the system in which is what netflix world exists in so i think honestly a lot of candidates don't even get this far which is kind of mapping out the system and in fact if you even get this far which is mapping out each player in the system and what they would want i think you're ahead of you know the median person who tries to attempt this i think that's one i think the second question is um uh you know if you kind of get beyond the sort of the systems level thinking around this is how what are netflix's actual goals in this right what are their business goals what are their customer goals and what are you actually trying to optimize for if you're netflix you know are you trying to just optimize for keeping people on the platform getting them to watch the most content i don't think so because they you know i don't think that leads you to the optimum which would give you house of cards or stranger things so what it is that you're actually trying to optimize if you're netflix and second how can you measure? How can you measure it? And what can't you measure? I think those are very interesting discussions. So, for example, you know, you can talk about, hey, you know, uh, this is content that we know is retentive. This is content that we don't know, but we're going to take a bet that it is retentive, etc. So, the question, I think, that putting a bounding box around what you're trying to optimize for and how to measure it, I think, is second. The third, I think, is uh, you know, one of my pet theories is you know um, that one way to compete with large platform companies is trying to build things that they can't measure. And another way to think about that is there are things that you can't measure and things you can't. And how do you, and I think a lot of, product decisions or business decisions is building a bounding box and constraining, you know, both of these questions. Uh, uh, for example, at Facebook, often when you go to Mark and you would have, say, a question which is driven by data, which gives you one answer, and one driven by instinct, which gives you another answer, one common answer or resolution would be, okay, we're going to give you a budget, right? You have 10% to, you know, go with the, your gut or 20% to go with your gut, and you'll see what happens because, you know, we maybe we're not measuring the right thing. So in the Netflix case, one way to think about this is, okay, we're going to give you a budget, uh, and. And where you have 30%, you know, of home screen attention driven by editorial, and we're going to see what happens. So there's no right or wrong answer. But I think these are all interesting questions, like cultural questions, metrics questions, systems level questions. Um, um, and I think figuring out the questions are often more interesting than what the answers are. By the way, you might have seen I slightly dodged answering what the actual answers are.
0: Yeah, of course. I want to close with uh, some, some topics you've, you've been thinking about recently. Uh, truth as a service. Uh, stories platform mr wolf for security get into any of those that you you find interesting and want to leave the audience uh, with.
1: mr wolf for security uh, uh, uh a long time ago I got in trouble for an interview for uh saying something is the mr Wolf of X and my PR person got really mad at me uh so mr wolf for security is like a pithy phrase but one phenomenon I think a lot of us have seen over time is how untrustworthy a phone net your phone company is as a source of identity uh, we've seen a lot of famous people getting hacked, including, you know, uh, Jack, uh, where somebody does a SIM port. And the scary thing, and I've spoken a lot of, People in the security industry about this is that you really can't stop it. Uh, you know, because in some ways the phone companies are, uh, trying to make phone porting, uh, number porting as easy as possible. Uh, you know, because the government has a lot of penalties for them if they don't actually support that. So their incentives are a little mixed in actually making it as secure as possible. And there's all these social engineering vectors that come into play. So, so I think given the rise of sim porting attacks, I think there's this big question of, hey, what, how do you actually prove you are you online? I think that's question one. Question two is, I think for a lot of us, we have a lot more at stake digitally then we have, let's say, for example, an entire physical home. Uh, for example, I think for me, you know, uh, if you take what I said, of course, my family and the humans who live inside my home. I think that I have much more value with things I have digital access to, my bank account, my you know, crypto accounts, uh, my social media, maybe than I have maybe you know, like I think I have like a small amount of cash and you know, uh, my my laptops and computers at home. Uh, please don't break to my home if you're listening to this. Uh, and so one way to think about it is how do you then protect these digital assets and what do you do when things go bad? So one of the terrifying scenario is, let us say you lose access to, I, I think the most terrifying scenario for any of us is one day you get a notification from Gmail saying somebody else is logged in. You, you're like, well, I never not logged in. You open it up and then you find yourself locked out. Right, and then your phone's not working anymore because you know somebody just imported you, and you're just totally cut off. Um, and probably the people you're going to reach to try and help you are you can't probably reach them because you 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 can't actually get access to devices where you, you can actually communicate with them. And this is actually what happens, by the way, if you get you know attacked one of these. So uh, anyway, so I think these are really scary scenarios, and I think a lot of us, uh, uh, especially folks who are more online, worry about these. And I think there's an opportunity to fix them. And so my Mr. Wolf for security was uh, about, let us say you had a person or a company which you could call and say, look, hey, somebody just, I just got broken into, right? You know, somebody stole my Gmail account or predicted me, you know, help me. And this person, just like Mr. Wolf in Pulp Fiction, is like, you know what? I got it, you know, you don't worry, I'm going to take care of things. You know, they first, they come to your house uh, or value you physically and they validate your physical identity. Now, by the way, I think this is a very interesting problem in itself. Uh, One um, tweet of Dan Romero uh, of ex-Coinbase fame, which I loved, was how you have clear in the airports which validate you physically. Why can't we have it in like more places? Like, why can't I, you know, log into say my Bitcoin account, my bank account using clear, right? But imagine, for example, that this Mr. Wolf shows up at your house, you know, and say, okay, you are actually at it. Second is then they can actually assume, uh, you know, they can say proxy you to digital services. So for example, I actually don't know if any one of us got hacked by Gmail or uh, got our Gmail accounts hacked. Who do I contact? How long will Google take to turn us around? I'm pretty sure one of us will try and find some friend of us at Google and be like, Hey, please help me. This is actually me. Uh, But I'm pretty sure for the average person, they don't even know whom to contact. I don't actually know whom to contact. But let us say this Mr. Wolf could say, look, they can prove to Google that they have verified it is you and they can take ownership of handling your affairs. So for example, they can say, okay, we are going to take this account, put this account in lockdown. We are going to restore access and then slowly try and, you know, rest one, lock out the intruder analyze damage and give you both give you back access so now i I actually think like this is a service which a, a lot of people in Silicon Valley would pay for. And I think as more and more people have more equity on their digital footprint than they do in their physical footprint, I think this is something which is really valuable. Now, the exact idea may not be as interesting, but I think the elements in there—putting a physical identity, uh, you know, having somebody who can, you know, you know, proxy these digital services and buying digital security insurance, just like you buy, you know, home insurance—I think there's some interesting ideas in there. I
0: love it. In, in closing, or what do you want to leave us about what your investment thesis is, or or where you're looking to invest to, to the audience?
1: Well, you know, uh, you know I'm still literally new to investing. Um, uh, you know, uh, for me, it's about uh, one is do I have chemistry with the founder? Uh, a, are they solving an interesting problem? And third is have they really? understood something deep about the problem which a lot of other people haven't uh, so I think you know those sound very pithy but I think they have often worked for me uh, so for example by the way as an investor I think I'm supposed to talk about my portfolio oh yes of course that's what yes. you're supposed to do right? Uh, exactly all right, so.
0: scale cameo uh, uh,
1: well I'm going to pick one which I think a lot of folks may not have heard of uh, uh, one of the things I've been doing more is like investing in companies in India yeah. uh, uh, we can go into some of the time about like how oh, I think India is in this sort of this great way of consumer product innovation and one company I met is called Katabook uh, I'm sure you haven't heard of them no, no. Uh, and so I actually met this founder through uh, somewhat of a random intro and I didn't really know much about them now for some context India has a huge ecosystem um, and by the way for you Indian listeners I know this is super basic forgive me yeah, uh, and
0: give the, give the TLDR why it's a, a, a next TLDR consumer company is,
1: it does huge ecosystem of these small stores they're called Kirana stores but basically these small mom and pop stores at the end of your street where you can buy everything from like stationery to basic groceries to you know uh, I think at the time there's the cigarettes like just this basic mom mom-and-pop store, uh, which exists at the end of the street, this huge ecosystem. uh, Think like very uh, small-scale SMBs. And what Book does is it's an app which tracks, you know, account deliverables and receivables. Now, in the past, or at least today, most of these stores would have this dusty book which they would pull out and be like, well, this vendor owes me like, you know, 500 rupees for this. I need to pay this guy like 800 rupees for that. They have this dusty book they would keep. This is an Android app which basically takes over that. Now, this is interesting. I was like, okay, that's an interesting proposition. But Ravish, the founder, you know, has spent so much time, you know, talking to these store owners. And what he has done is inside the app, he's built a network effect because now when one the app tracks what these uh account deliverables and receivables are two is when you want to pay someone you do this in the app and now what happened the second storekeeper goes like well hey what is this app that this person is using to pay me with and it then signs them up so very quickly you know they're able to build a picture of how these i would say hundreds of thousands if not millions of smbs work with each other what their financial transactions are and build a really interesting picture now you can see how this opens up all sorts of interesting opportunities because you now have such a clear picture of how commerce is flowing across this part of India. So anyway, so I knew nothing about the space and I know nothing about like these small stores in India, but I met Ravish and I was just blown away because he had spent so much time with them and then he had built this, you know, incredible product, which has distribution as a code element in itself because every time a storekeeper sends one, they're like, hey, what is this app? And they wind up adopting it and it's super interesting. So uh, I think that kind of checks all these check boxes.
0: And and just to play it off a like, why could there be a $100 billion consumer social company in, in India? in the next few years? A
1: few things. Uh, I think, you know, uh, uh, I think to, I'll give you sort of the BCS intellectual framework and then sort of the the cultural framework. I think the two intellectual frameworks are, I think uh, with geo geo, by the way, is uh, this 4g data connectivity built by India's largest telco operator Reliance, uh, which basically brought 4g at very cheap prices to a large part of India. You know, I don't want to get into the details. Just yeah. Google it, but I think it's been a sea change because all of a sudden, uh, Hundreds of millions of people in India have access to 4G data connectivity, which they just didn't have in the past. And this, along with how the other operators have responded, I think has been a sea change. So in some ways, India has kind of skipped the PC desktop era and all of a sudden gone straight to mobile internet. And, you know, this blows my mind. When I go to India now, I see people watching live streaming TV, you know, uh, you know, on the road, which I don't even really see in the United States as much. So it kind of, I think there's this sort of sea consumer behavior change happening in India, thanks to Jio. That's one. Second, I think is India has been really pushing the idea of a digital stack. Uh, One key element I would point out is UPI. UPI is a United Payment uh, interface which lets people transfer money between bank accounts instantly. So, for example, if I want to send you money, you know, it has two-factor odds, it odds me, and then there's instant money transfer from my account to your bank account instantly, in a way which I still can't do in the United States today. Like, if I had to send you money outside of Square Cash or Venmo, for example, I actually don't know how to do it instantly with my bank account, right? You know, ACH is kind of this old outdated infrastructure, but India Kind of, you know, built a standard which a lot of these companies are adopted. So, one, I think you have broad, you know, data connectivity at super low prices. Second, you have payments at scale for a large part of India. And I think this has kind of opened up all sorts of interesting innovation uh, in consumer experience. I think it's kind of the two big secular changes I've seen. The emotional change, I think, is Um, And I think this will resonate with a lot of Indian audience. You know, when I grew up in India, you know, the thing that you were told to do by your parents was be an engineer, be a doctor, get a safe job. Uh, You know, if it's not a very risk averse way. Uh, And if you look at, for example, like what is put in pop culture, you know, what the, you know, the typical stereotypical protagonist would do, they'd be told to go get a safe job. Right. But now I think entrepreneurship and startup founders have kind of taken that role where when i talk to kids in india these days they look up to the founders of flipkart they look up to the founder of Paytm or freecharge or you know ola and they look up to them as role models and now you know what blew my mind was when i was watching a you know bollywood movie recently where, you know the protagonist a hero tells his mom you know I'm, i want to start a startup and i, I was like oh my gosh I, that is such a sea change in india so i think there is a cultural shift around encouraging and being more accepting of being an entrepreneur and just given the number of people that exist in india the access to talent uh it, just a talent pool there i think it's going to open up like all sorts of interesting innovation so we can go we can go we can spend an entire hour in india but i'm really bullish um and i've been trying to spend more time there just physically flying out there and it's been super interesting
0: that's a perfect place to wrap my guest today has been shram krishnan uh Shroom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast
1: thanks for having me. and watch out for eric on tiktok <laughs> any day now stay tuned and
0: verify your account with twitter oh, it's <laughs>